Well, this afternoon, uh, we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, moving on to the next and actually final section of the book. Now, that doesn't mean we've just got like two, three weeks left, though. Uh, But as we uh, enter into Hebrews chapter 12 in the last section, uh, we've called, I've titled it Growing in the Greater Than. We looked at the holding on to, now we're looking at growing in the greater than. Starting in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through the end of chapter 13. Let's go ahead and read chapter 12 just so we can hear uh, what's around it. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation? That addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Be not weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seems best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled, that no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At the same time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God a, offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us pray. Our Father, praise and glory be unto you for your word. This, your words to us, your voice speaking to us in these words. Would you guide us in this? May we first of all receive what we have heard as 
your words, garnering them the attitude befitting of them being your words, believing them, and from that walking in them. Father, we ask that you would keep us chained to this word. We ask that you'd work in each of us according to your will, that you might increase and strengthen our faith. Would you guide the preacher, chain him to your word, that he might freely declare your truth and help him to be clear and accurate and understandable. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in our walk through the book of Hebrews, we are on what you might call the, uh, the anchor lap or the final lap around, the, around this book. We've been through six sections and we're now on the seventh and final lap. And in this lap and in this race, and I bring this up intentionally because our text today has to do with running a race. As we uh, now look at the home stretch of this, we're now, tr- we're now moving to a new focus. What we've seen, as we've seen early on uh, throughout the book, uh, the, foundation of, uh, the foundation of it all being Jesus the greater than, who is the greatest revelation of God, who's greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than the priesthood, and he's the greatest sacrifice. And then the importance of holding on to this one who is the greater than by faith so that we can endure in that faith and endure in growing in him is laid before us. And uh, in chapter 10, verse 19, uh, through the end of chapter 11. And now we move on to chapter 12, which now he begins talking about our growth in that our growth in the likeness of Christ, our growth in righteousness and in holiness and what it is to to do that. We see language in this section with regards to uh, God bringing discipline to us. We, and when we, I don't want to get too far ahead, but we oftentimes think of discipline primary and primarily in terms of retribution. That we're getting that the discipline is because we did something bad, and while the, that no doubt entails discipline, what father does not train their children, regardless of what behaviors they're 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 doing? Training them in what they're doing well and encouraging it through discipline and training. Those of you who were in the Navy know full well when you went through boot camp, it didn't matter whether you did things right. You were still going to do push-ups. That's part of discipline and training. <clears throat> and then we, talk, then we see the importance of uh, pursuing the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is that there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is absolutely perfect holiness that's not attained in this life to pursue that holiness. That's what sanctification entails, is pursuing that holiness which we will finally attain to in the resurrection. But in this life, we're called upon to pursue that holiness. We sometimes read that to say that it's with that, that by that pursuit we shall see the Lord it's by that holiness that is ours in Christ Jesus we'll see it and we're called upon to pursue that. And all those who are his do pursue that. And then we also see the importance of holding one another accountable and such. But the foundation of all of that in this section begins in this very first few verses in verses 1 through 3 in which we are given the imagery of a race based upon everything that's come before with regards to chapter 11, this great cloud of witnesses. Remember when we walk through the book of, when we walk through chapter 11 through the hall of faith or through the cloud of witnesses, we saw all these various different figures from Abel all the way through to the prophets and various others who by faith were accepted by God. God uh, showing that he had accepted them. We saw that we saw Abraham, we saw Moses, we saw also Isaac and Jacob. Uh, we saw Rahab, the prostitute, and we saw many, many others who by faith saw 
many, many things that we would call that we would call good and experience many things that we would call difficult or evil by faith. Being persecuted, being killed, being tortured, but by faith they endured. They continued holding on to Christ and continued pursuing it. And we see that because of that, he says, let us also do something. And let's hear those words again in verses 1 through 3, just so they're fresh in our mind. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance this race set bef- the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Sometimes when we see the subheadings here that the editors of the Bible translation gives us, we assume that that's where the new section should begin. Uh, Reading the Greek text, I tend to disagree, but I could be wrong. These folks are also probably smarter than me. Um, But the editors of the Greek text think a new section begins in uh, in verse 4. But anyway... Take notice of this, first of all, to whom is he talking here in verse uh, 1? The main command that we have here uh, is actually found a few lines in. The main idea and the main command here in the first part of this in verses 1 and 2 is let us run. Let us run. That's the main, what we would call the verb. Everything else there is supporting information. That, that tell about this run that we are called to run, or this, uh, how we are to run this race. Uh, they are uh, a little grammar. Uh, they're participles, or ing words, going back to your sixth grade grammar, and things like that. And they're modifying the idea of let us run. But notice to whom he's saying, the author does not say, you run. He says, let us run. Here the author is including himself in the exhortation, saying that I am not exempt from this need to run this race. I am not exempt from needing to remember that in remembering this cloud of witnesses to lay aside every weight and lay aside every sin to to run this race by, by looking to Jesus He is not excluding himself from this. This is not, uh, remember the book of Hebrews, we have an issue with these, uh, those to whom he is writing at the end of chapter 5, we see that they're quite immature. They're at a point where they should be much further along as Christians than they were at that point. And he's addressing immaturity. And so, but here he includes us indicating this is true of every believer, regardless of how mature they are in the faith. The need to remember these very basic things, these foundational elements of what it is to live as a Christian when everything around us and sometimes things in our own minds are telling us, give it up. Give it up. Everyone needs this exhortation. There is no one who should consider themselves exempt from this need. Consider someone using this imagery of a race. Consider a marathon. I have never run a marathon in my 20s, I had the desire. I was a lot smaller, and I was running a lot, 35 to 50 miles a week, and I thought I would train for a marathon, whether I would run it or not, do the training for a marathon. But I decided to do so on my own without guidance from anyone who had done it before. About three months later, a doctor told me, you should stop running, and you're probably never going to be able to run again in your life because I had overtrained myself and I had hurt myself. But what I learned in that training was... Everyone, regardless of how much they've been running in a marathon, no matter how many marathons they've run, it's 26 and change miles. 
they get to that 18th mile and it becomes, it doesn't matter how many marathons somebody's run. You get to mile 18 and what they all say is it is a chore to keep putting one foot in front of the other. That those first 18 miles seem to go by real quick and you get to that eight, mile 18 and it seems like it's never going to end. And so that's true of all Christians that we need to continue running this race. And we have examples of seasoned Christians who we would have looked up to as models of the faith who all of a sudden have gone off the rails or off the reservations in different ways. And so there's no one who's exempt from this need to take this instruction and to heed it well. The next thing we have in this run is we have, and we're going to get to the other things in just a moment, but this imagery of a race. And it's a running race. The, in the ancient world, the Greeks, the ancient Greek world invented the, what we call the Olympics. And it was mostly what we would call the track and field sports. But there was a lot of races, and the Romans had different, and the Roman Empire had different ways of carrying on such races. But running races were very common. And he's implying in this running, the goal is not simply to finish, but the goal is to finish well. In 2006, I had the privilege of after a what was supposed to be a 20-minute hike across Tibetan grasslands in Tibet. That's what the young boy told us to get off the bus, a 20-minute hike to get to a horse race. Three hours later, we arrived. After uh, part of that involved a Tibetan Mastiff trying to eat us. It's a really big dog. We got there, and we got there to the beginning of the race. And they just took off. And I said, what is this? Uh, we, we asked our person who knew Tibetan there, what kind of race is this? And he said, well, this is, they'll be back in about three hours. And why do they take off so fast? Well, it's for show. And of course, then they came, and they came back and ran really fast at the end. But in between, they pretty much just slowed to a trot once they were out of sight. A part of that race, they began really well, but not everyone who began that race finished it. Some of them who had began really well didn't finish well at all. And so here the race is about finishing the race, continuing to hold on to Christ, growing in him and holding on to it while holding on to him. And so we have this image of a race to run it well to the end. Not just to run well now, but to run well to the end. And then we also have this picture of this great cloud of witnesses surrounding this race, which we've already brought up. That again, all these who had come before, who had done all these various different things, he said, and they did all of this not having received in their life the promise to which they were looking. They join with us in eternal life. They join with us in having been justified. They join with us in having all the blessings of being sons of God through Christ Jesus. But Christ had not yet come. It was all still a promissory note. And he says, and they endured by faith. They continued running that race, even though what they, what they were looking for was a shadow in the distance. And so he says this, consider this, and then consider what we have. Christ has come. How much more do we have every reason to run this race and to run it well? Which we'll get to that in a little bit. We're also going to see that in a moment, that it is not this great cloud of witnesses to which we look. Rather, it is to one, the one to whom they looked who has already come, our Lord Jesus Christ. Another modifying aspect before we get to uh, the, the race and running it 
he tells us certain things need to be set aside. Certain things need to be taken off. Again, place ourselves at uh, the preparation for a race. If you happen to might have watched Olympics or other different running races or even other sports. You see them show up oftentimes in warm-up suits, wearing, uh, wearing quite a bit of clothing. And they're jumping around, getting ready, doing their thing. But time comes to race, and most of that clothing goes away, except for just shorts and, and some, sort of a, some sort of a top. Because they're taking off the extra weight. They're taking off the extra weight because it's going to slow them down. And he talks about some things here that weigh us down and make running the race difficult. He says, laying aside every weight and the easily besetting sin. And the easily besetting sin. Lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely or the easily besetting sin or the clinging sin. Now we can make a distinction between the, these two, the, uh, the weight and the sin, that they're two different things. We could also look at them as different ways of stating the same thing because whatever we're taught, because even those things that which may weigh us down, uh, that may, may indeed be good things when we treat them poorly or treat them in ways we shouldn't, we're treating them in sinful ways, so it gets back to laying aside sin. But he says every weight... Think of those things onto which we hold, which may not be bad in and of themselves, but may bring us to be distracted from Christ. Things that we hold on to with dear life. That while they may good be good, they are not the best. And we hold on to them with dear life. Maybe jobs. Jobs are good. But if, if holding on to a job with tightness causes us to compromise faith or something or compromise our testimony, time to not hold on to it so tightly. Even, how, even houses, even children, even spouses. Not that we should be leaving spouses and abandoning our children. Make it clear, I'm not saying that. But that God at any given moment could take those away. I pray he doesn't. But any given moment. But the one thing that is real is Jesus, that, that is eternal and, and good is Jesus Christ. In fact, now to say to, to abandon our children or to leave our spouses in the name of in the name of Christ would actually to be uh, sinning. So make clear that. It's not okay to do that. Even our culture. There's also the easily besetting sin or the clinging sin. We could look at this in terms of specific sins which we might struggle with. And obviously includes, he's been talking a lot about holding on to Christ and not leaving him. That is the sin of apostasy. But based on the context of 12 now, he's going on to other, other things. He's talking about uh, things like sexual immorality. He's talking about uh, ways that we relate to one another, roots of bitterness and such. He's talking about laying aside the sin that clings. And while each of us has different sins that seem to be nagging at us, that we really seem to struggle with in different ways. He's speaking of sin here in general, it would seem. That is, to not cherish our sin. Christ has redeemed us from sin, and we have no business cherishing sin. Cherishing sin blinds us, and it takes our eyes off of Christ. It interferes with assurance. We can be blinded by sin. We must turn from sin. We must also be frankly honest with ourselves and with God to acknowledge our sin and seek his face. That is, it's not only turning, it's also acknowledging that I, you, and I are deeply sinful. 
and have many more things with which we need to deal. That our posture before God should be in and of ourselves the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we have Jesus who tells a parable for to lay aside sin is to acknowledge we have sin, doesn't it not? Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and, he, and he, uh, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated them with contempt. Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That when we look at this, one of our temptations might be to say, yeah, I've, I've set aside that sin, but this guy over there, he's not, done, not doing so well. We put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisee when we do that. Our posture must always be that of the tax collector. The moment we start thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, that we don't have sin to set aside, is the moment we are tripping ourselves up in our run and in our race. For that is the moment the devil will pounce. And then we become the story of one who all of a sudden did seem to have gone off the reservation. So here he calls basically for a continued life of repentance and confession and acknowledging our weakness to enter into to enter into a to enter into Christ by faith and to be united with him by faith is to begin a life of repentance to enter into a battle that we did not have before It is by faith that we enter into repentance, not the other way around. So we enter into repentance by faith in union with Christ. And at the root of that, as he's been saying, trusting himself and not ourselves. Trusting himself and not ourselves. Part of laying aside the sin is setting aside our default resting heart rate of looking at ourselves and saying, I have this. We don't have this Christ has this he's going to state that clearly when he says looking unto him he also uses a mo- a- another modifier in terms of running this race with endurance let us run with endurance consider again the runner running the race and all of us have probably found ourselves in this kind of situation usually a physical activity, but can also be other types of activity, where we find ourselves struggling to continue. The missionary boot camp I went through many years ago, and I've told this story before. Of course, many years ago is relative. It was in 2004. I was a team leader. And we were on a a certain route, and we all knew that route was a four-mile run. And so the leaders, uh, so we all, and so we're all prepared in our heads for a four-mile run. We come back to the starting point after four miles, and the leaders kept going. And we're all tired, and we're all struggling to put one foot in front of the other. I thought we have to endure. How do I get my team to endure? 
And I thought, in one case, they wanted us to do 400 push-ups. On another occasion, I just started quoting famous lines from something. In this case, I just thought, it's going gonna, it's gonna to end sometime because they can't run forever. So it's going to end. And that's one of the points. It's going to end. And so putting one foot in front of the other, enduring. Or maybe we're trying to, or another illustration, we may be trying to learn something. Some of us may be trying to learn an instrument and we get stuck trying to at one particular thing and we can't seem to get over it. And the endurance is what gets us over it. And again, from whence comes endurance? It comes from faith. The perseverance of continuing to put one foot in front of the other and running this race. It gets hard. It gets tiring. The Christian life is not one that is always easy. There's often hardships. There's a wearying battle that we fight with our own sin. There's worries and anxiousness that come upon us. Doubts that creep into our minds. We must be honest with those things if we are to endure. And to not think of ourselves as stronger than we are and remember that it is from our weakness that Christ is strong. Remember, to, to have need of endurance is to have need of faith in Christ. And so to endure, to endure with this endurance is first and foremost to continue putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Continue holding on to him with dear life. And also part of endurance is something we don't always like to hear, is that there are no shortcuts. There are those who promise that if you, if you, if you, if you buy their teaching series, usually at a kind of expensive cost, if you buy their teaching series and listen to it, all of the problems that you struggled with will be done. That's not endurance, my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, and nor is that person offering something really good. That person is offering snake oil. Back in the day, there were people who would sell, base, who would sell snake oil and other things as cure-alls for everything. And it turns out all they were selling was water or snake oil. There are no shortcuts. There's a road to walk, and we are called upon to walk this road. But oh, the, the end of that road is absolutely glorious. For let us run as to finish and to finish well. It's not about beating our brother or sister in Christ. It's not a contest with other Christians and other churches. It's a contest, in reality, with ourselves. Finishing the race. Finishing. That is what it is to run this race. Continue holding on to Christ and in the process growing in him. For as we grow in him and as we turn from sin and as we grow in, sanctific- grow in the outworking of our sanctification, we can see Christ more clearly too. And our assurance increases for the, while the, outworking of our sanctification does not is not the foundation of our assurance it confirms our assurance for us is Christ who is the foundation of our assurance Sinclair Ferguson in his series teaching series that we went through as a church the whole Christ he talked about assurance and one of the things he pointed out was to a young man struggling with assurance and he asked him if he was, uh, how he was doing in his obedience. And he said he was kind of had get, uh, gotten lax in seeking to grow. And he told him, he said, "Well, uh, your obedience is not your found is not your assurance, but it confirms your assurance. So get to obe- get to obeying. For sin can take our eyes off of Christ, especially cherishing it." And part of running this race, a fundamental part of running this race now, having seen this, 
Remembering we, each of us, have this need. None of us is exempt from it. Considering this great cloud of witnesses, setting aside those things that weigh us down, in particular our, our own sin, and enduring, that is, looking to Christ Jesus by faith. He then says, run this race, let us run this race, looking to, G- looking to Jesus, or another way of translating it, looking away to Jesus. Looking away to Jesus who is and we'll talk about what this looking away is in just a moment but he says something about Jesus he says he is the author and finisher of the faith our first impulse is to read that as our faith but the word our is not there he just says the author and finisher of faith the author and finisher of faith and so he's left it ambiguous is it my faith or is it the faith It's been a while since I've used this phrase, but my own Greek mentor said when you struggle to find a a specific definition for something in a a usage of something, and it could be that there's multiple ways that it could be used legitimately, and people do this when they write, intend things to be taken multiple ways, then you take it in both ways. He called it semantic density. Semantic meaning meaning and density meaning packed with, you know, all sorts of different ideas. So it is the faith and it is our faith. And as the author and finisher, another way of saying that is that it's communicating something to us. As the author of the faith, he is the beginning of faith. As the finisher of faith, he is the end of faith. So in terms of the faith, he authored and began the faith which we believe by which we have been redeemed. He himself lived and he himself died and he himself rose again. He is our confession, the beginning and end of the confession which we believe. He is also the beginning and end, the the beginning and, and the author and finisher of our own faith. He is at work in us by the Spirit that He and the Father have sent, who is at work in us. And He began it and He ended it. There's a short little song, I am forever grateful. It says, He did not wait for me to cry out. You did not wait for me to cry out to you, but you let me hear your voice calling me. You do not wait. <clears throat> you do not wait for, for, for me to draw near to you, but you clothe yourself in frail humility or humanity. That says, I am forever grateful to you. See, he's the beginning and the end of our own faith. At the beginning of life, at the end of life, throughout life, Christian life, there is Christ. And he says, looking away to this one who is the beginning, who is the end, who is everything with regards to the faith and our faith. What is our faith without Christ? What is the faith without Christ? There is no Christianity without Christ. There is no confession without Christ. There is no redemption without Christ, for he is the beginning and the end of it. All of the law and the prophets pointed to him, as we've seen in our study of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 10, he stated that he being the founder of what our faith brings us, which is salvation. For it was fitting, chapter 2, verse 10 of Hebrews, if you wish to turn there. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. He's the founder of our salvation. In chapter 5, verse 9 as well. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And then we see, and again, we'll get to what it is to look at to him in just a, in a little bit. But this Jesus to whom we're called upon to look also endured a cross. And enduring the, and enduring the cross, he despised the shame of that cross. 
that he did, first of all, he endured it. There in the garden when he, when he cried out to the Father and he said, let this cup pass from me, saying, if there's any other way we could accomplish this, let's do that. But nonetheless, not my will, but your be done, yours be done, speaking according to the weakness of his own humanity. And he endured. He went through it. To the point where he said upon the cross, Eloi, 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 lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Expressing the wrath of God being poured out upon him according to his human nature. And he did not, dis- and he despised this, the shame of the cross. That is, he did not cave in to the sense of shame. Think of this. One great motivating factor that we have in doing something or not doing something is the shame we might receive. When it is, when it is considered shameful to do that which is right, that is a great temptation to embrace, to embrace that and say, I'm not going to do what's right because I don't wish to be shamed. He despised the shame. He said, I don't care. I'm going to go to the cross and receive the shame of this cross because he did it for his own for our good and for his glory. He didn't cave into the shame. He suffered taking upon himself the shame of the cross on behalf of himself for us <clears throat> on behalf of us for his own glory. He endured <clears throat> as Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus has endured the suffering and shame which were due to us. O soul, you can never start on the road to heaven unless you look to him who endured the cross. We also look to this one who endured the cross because of the joy set before him. The Greek word there that is translated for here in the ESV and, in other, and many other translations is a word that is not often easy to translate. Now, the, it's a preposition. Again, sixth grade grammar prepositions gave me nightmares. Couldn't figure them out. It took taking Greek in seminary for me to figure out what prep, how to use prepositions. <clears throat> but the preposition there is anti, not anti like my aunt but auntie like a ant, like anti. So that could be understood as a place. Uh, he, endured, he endured the cross placed against the backdrop of the joy that was set before him. It could be understood if he endured the cross in place of the joy set before him. Or in my preferred translation is he endured the cross because of the joy set before him. Because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. We sometimes get this idea that we endure in order to get. We endure because of. We endure because of. Jesus endured because he knew the promise. He knew everything that was coming. He knew all that it would accomplish. So he endured because of. Like those who came before He endured in view of promise fulfilled through the promise that had not found fulfillment in time and space. Those who endured in that way. And Jesus endured because of the joy set before him. But Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that those who came before for what they were looking. Not only that, he's now been seated at the right hand of God. He is now there before the Father, interceding on our behalf as our prophet as our priest, and as our king. And furthermore, he has, in being seated at the right hand of the Father, having brought before him his inter- before the Father his interceding work, brought before him his sacrifice, brought before him his word, brought before him his, com- his righteousness. He's in a place of exaltation, and he has now rested from his work which is a promise for us, there is rest for us. We also begin with rest because he rested.
the old covenant. One labored and then rested because that was the created order. In the new creation, we rest and then we labor. Unto the view that even that labor shall come to an end. He's rested from his work. Spurgeon again says with regards to his having been seated at the right hand of God. In the fact that he gives you an assurance of your own victory. The seed of the woman has bruised the serpent's heart. And therefore the Lord will tread Satan under your feet shortly. The death of Christ is our death for sin. But the life of Christ is our life unto holiness. The shame of Christ was our shame. And the triumph of Christ is our triumph. Therefore, looking unto Jesus, let us run. So now we get to when he says looking to Jesus, what is he saying? First of all, just as how is it that we look to Christ? We look by faith. John Owen says, looking in scripture when it refers to God or Christ denotes an act of faith or trust with hope and expectation. So to look to Christ is to continue to believe upon him. You see the, all the importance of what he's saying, of holding on to Christ by faith. Because if we hold on to Christ by faith, it is that by that which we run the race. We don't run by ourselves. We run looking to him. But also, he says, looking away to Christ. Looking away to Christ. John Owen again says, we are to look to Jesus in a special way. A way that is different from the way that we looked at the cloud of witnesses. When we looked at that cloud of witnesses, we saw them as examples and testimonies of God's saving power to those who believe. But this cloud of witnesses, none of them did what was necessary to bring about the redemption we so desperately need. Each one of them is a deeply flawed individual like you and myself. We look at them as, t- as testimonies of something greater. We look, must look at them as testimonies and examples of those who look to somebody outside of themselves. And I would venture to say that many of them, if not all of them, if we were to say we're looking to you, To say, don't you dare look to me. Look away from me. Look to Jesus. We are also looking away from ourselves. The Christian life is, while it it involves aspects of introspection and to turn from sin, we must be aware of our sin, which means there's an element of looking inside. But the temptation is to spend our entire lives doing what I would call sanctified navel-gazing. Meditating in and upon ourselves and in and upon our own hearts and spending all of our time looking at ourselves. I need to do better. I need to try harder. And 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 look deeper and deeper in and all we do is find despair. There's a good reason for that. Because we're looking at the wrong object. The right object is Christ. The right object is Christ. We're also looking away from the weights and sins that so easily beset us and weigh us down. Looking away from those things that are weights and that can cause us to stumble. And oh, oh, how often we do frequently stumble. Oh, how often we trip over those weights. But in this race, it's not a, oh, you tripped, it's over. It's a get up and keep running. Get up and keep running. Furthermore, we're not looking to Christ primarily as an example. It's not first and foremost, follow Jesus' example. That's secondary to this idea. But as one who redeems and saves, we look to him as our Savior. We run the race looking to him as our Savior and King. In his atoning work, there is an element of example. 
but it is secondary and tertiary to the primary idea. Tertiary means thirdly. Secondary, I think, is self-explanatory. In that, in his atonement, he took upon himself our sin. In his life, he fulfilled God's righteous requirement on our behalf. That's the primary idea behind his work, redeeming work on our behalf. Secondary to that, he's given us an example to follow. But if we make that the primary idea, we've robbed the atonement of its meaning. We've robbed it of its meaning. Remember what we read earlier. That he made. That that he makes those whom he has brought to himself. Perfect through his suffering. That he became the source of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. That is look to him. So first and foremost, this is a matter of trusting in him and his finished work on our behalf. It is only in that that we can say our Lord endured as one of us. And so let us endure. And then in verse 3, he then gives a command, which is actually, this is both part of verses 1 and 2, as well as part of the following section. It's a transition verse. It's connecting the two. So it bears, it bears to be talking about it in this message as well as in the next one. But he says, let us consider something. Let us consider what? First of all, in light of all this, let's consider, he says, Jesus. Let us consider Jesus. On our behalf, what did he do? He endured hostility against himself at the hand of sinners. Again, why did he endure? He endured on our behalf as the sufficient sacrifice. And we need to keep this before our eyes. He, the righteous one who had done no evil, had only obeyed God, endured great hostility at the hands of sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike. At the hands of humans, he endured hostility. And no Christian is exempt from enduring such things. We are not greater than our master, Jesus says in uh, John chapter 16. Yet, he and his, his enduring that is in a different way than us. We don't endure to redeem anybody. We endure because he redeemed us. But he also says, why should we consider this? In verse 3. So that you may not grow weary or faint hearted. Uh, Which it's interesting structure in the way it's in the original language. But it basically it says so that we might not grow weary. Becoming weary in our hearts. Become or, or our hearts become our souls becoming weary, so that we may not become weary by our souls becoming weary. What do we speak of when we think of weariness? There are some days, and I'm sure each of you experiences this in different ways. I had one this week where I had to actively push myself to finish things that I wanted to get done because I was just weary, not weary of the work that I do. I was just physically drained, physically drained. I had a headache all day and I couldn't seem to do anything to get rid of it. But I also said, I have these things that need to be done. And I was weary. All I wanted to do was go lay down. And so what I did is I finished the things that I had set out to finish that day. And then I went and laid down. But it's weariness is part of life and including in the Christian life. It's easy to grow weary in faith and grow weary in well-doing. Weariness is being tired. And sometimes looking to what we erroneously consider greener grass. Sometimes if you're driving down 20 or some of the back roads and you can... Uh, see the cows that are uh, out there grazing. Sometimes they'll get up near the fence 
and they'll be sticking their nose out to eat the grass that's on the other side of the fence, which is the same exact grass. But because it's on the other side of the fence, it must be better grass. But how we, we laugh, but how often we think that ourselves. We may grow weary in our own souls. So what does considering this do? We see that Jesus has won the victory on our behalf. That is, he conquered. Because he conquered, we have every reason to not grow weary. Looking to him. We see that we have the final day won for us on our behalf. That while it becomes difficult and while the temptation to, to give up is there. And sometimes we find ourselves actually momentarily giving up. We have every read, but the race is get up and keep, get, get back to running. We confess that that can happen to the Christian. But in putting one foot in front of the other, what Jesus enduring the cross also tells us in him being seated at the right hand of God is it tells us this, it will end. There is an end. So keep going. There's an end. I I can't tell you when the end is. Just like those folks in that missionary boot camp who decided to pull a fast one on us and keep running. It will end. But we too, because he endured all of this, have great joy that is set before us. And again, keep in mind that great joy that is before us, the great glory that is awaiting us. The heavenly city that Abraham longed for, that Moses longed for, that we still long for, that we are now part of as a taste of things that are to come. And also, as an application of what we've seen earlier in Hebrews, we have one who suffered on our behalf, who is a great, who is the greatest high priest, who, though he was without sin, but according to his humanity, he sympathizes with our weakness. We can go to our Lord Jesus Christ and say, my Lord, this is very hard. And our Savior says, I know. I know. Oftentimes, those, when we find someone who's struggling with pain and difficulty, we want to come up with all sorts of words and come up with all sorts of ways of counseling, when in reality, those two words can do far more than a lot of other things. I know. Our Lord says, I know. And I lived and died for you. And I'm there and I love you dearly. So keep running. And, as a, and so he sympathizes with our weakness. And as a pattern, we have great joy that's set before us. So let us run because we have that joy set before us. Though we might have great trials and troubles on our way, we look to Jesus. And I leave you with these words from another, author, from another book in the New Testament. We don't know the author of Hebrews. Kind of becoming more and more convinced Paul actually is the author as I go through this. Still not 100% convinced. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, in closing, let us hear these words. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us pray. Father, we have this race that is set before us. We thank you that we have our champion, our Lord Jesus Christ, who ran, this, who ran the race and won on our behalf. Help us to keep that in our minds. Help us to look away from ourselves and our sin. 
to Jesus, who is the beginning and end, the author and finisher of the faith and of our faith. Help us to set aside the things that weigh us down. Help us to look to Christ by faith and thus endure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.